You are listening to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, a show about cybersecurity and the people that defend the internet. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders at Lima Charlie, and I'll be your host. The various episodes of this show are put together as a series of segments. These segments will cover everything from cybersecurity news to analyzing techniques employed by adversaries. We will also be interviewing cybersecurity experts and have a little bit of fun with hacker history. On today's show, Dr. Gerald Osier is going to take us through the last couple of weeks in cybersecurity news, and then I will be talking with Paul Cayazzo, Chief Growth Officer at SnapAttack. To get things going, here is the Simply Cyber Report. I'm Jerry, and this is the Simply Cyber Report, powered by Lima Charlie, the top cyber news stories you need to know about right now. Microsoft Security Threat Intelligence is reporting on the Raspberry Robinworm having infected at least 3,000 systems across 1,000 organizations at time of this report. First reported by Red Canary in September, Raspberry Robin is spread via USB drive, and yes, this is still a viable attack vector and very similar to how Stuxnet initially kicked off. It has very similar technical behavior to the fake updates malvertising campaigns, if you're familiar with that. Raspberry Robin compromises the endpoint and begins to build the collection of machines, which the threat actors then sell access to whoever and whenever they need it. The cyber criminal ecosystem is leveraging this offering as an access as a service model to deploy info stealers, ransomware, additional persistence mechanisms, just to name a few. Practitioners should protect from this malware through fundamental practice of end user education around USB drives, validating that auto run of USB drives is not enabled both on the endpoint and in group policy, and visit the Microsoft Security Threat Intelligence sites for technical indicators of compromise. All you Chrome users out there, prioritize patching your instances and ensuring your end users are patched too. Google has announced an emergency patch for a type confusion vulnerability in its popular web browser Chrome, ID to CVE 2022-3723. Google is not disclosing much information on this vulnerability, but there is moderate confidence that it's being actively exploited in the wild and can lead to arbitrary code execution on compromised systems. It's important to note this affects all versions of Chrome, so Windows users, Mac users, Linux users, Android users, y'all can finally agree on something. I'd recommend centrally forcing an update if possible in your environment and or notifying end users to take a minute, update, and then share with their friends and family to help protect them as well. Moving on to Terrible Pass, where it's still happening in 2022, Fast Company has reported a data breach and some reputational damage as a hacker named Thrax was able to log into multiple of the company's WordPress instances with the password pizza123, which I went ahead and looked up and confirmed is in the RockU password dictionary. The hacker accessed the system and collected multiple API keys and authentication tokens. And not to be basic, Thrax sent two obscene and offensive push notifications to the mobile device home screen of Fast Company's customers. Apple News Service suspended Fast Company until it got sorted out, and Fast Company had to issue a public apology. But the real TLDR here is to educate both end users and IT staff to include people who are considered application owners like WordPress on the risk of using terrible passwords and how to easily leverage password vaults for better password practices. And finally, statistical evidence has been published revealing that phishing attacks are not just still a threat but are increasing in frequency and effectiveness. Phishing has always been a popular initial attack vector for all levels of cyber threat actors with a variety of objectives. 
As technical defenses have improved over the years, threat actors have relied on the tried and true practice of social engineering end users into giving up their credentials or pulling down malware. Slashnext has released findings showing that phishing emails have increased 61% year-to-date from 2021, and that 75% of phishing emails are focused on credential harvesting. I myself have what I think is pretty good email security practices, and I still received a free Yeti backpack phish email just yesterday. End users are the clear target here. Consistency, vigilance, and non-technical language are the keys to winning and nerfing the success of phishing attacks on you, your loved ones, and the organizations you protect. Remember to check out simplycyber.io slash streams to get longer form, deeper dive cyber threat briefings every weekday morning. I'm Gerald Ozier from Simply Cyber. Consider yourself armed with knowledge. I love that that report contains something that macOS, Windows, and Linux users can all finally agree on. Next up is my interview with Paul Cayazzo, a cybersecurity expert, entrepreneur, and strategist. I really enjoyed talking with Paul and think there's a lot of valuable information to gain from our conversation. Thanks for being here, Paul. Yeah, excited to be here, Chris. Thanks for having me. Um, before we get into it, uh, do you want to just tell us what SnapAttack does? Yeah, sure. So SnapAttack is a platform that enables you to more rapidly action threat intelligence through detection as code, um, ultimately resulting in uh, more precise, more accurate, and faster threat hunts and just better detection outcomes in security operation centers. Uh, because through a process of adversary emulation and machine learning, uh, we're able to validate detection content before it hits your SIM or your EDR. Um, and we can also tell you in advance how many false positives you should expect from any given detection, which enables you to, you know, again, just have better detection outcomes and prioritize where you've got to improve your defenses. So up-to-date detection logic, but then also with supporting Intel to help you yeah. interpret the results of those detections. Yeah, so think about us as kind of the middleware between threat intelligence and SIM detections. So we think of uh, threat intelligence as setting uh, detection requirements, so it's upstream of snap attack. We ingest a lot of threat intelligence uh, from many sources. Uh, some we OEM in uh, from partner organizations like Mandiant. Uh, some we scrape from just trustworthy sources like Microsoft or the large vendors. Uh, we take what we learn through threat intelligence and emulate the adversary activity um, in our attack capture lab, which is actually pretty unique because we enable you to basically shoulder surf the adversary and their victim at the same time. So you can see exactly what uh, the bad guy's doing uh, from a keystroke and video perspective, and then the same thing on the victim side. Um, but more importantly than just the video is all the telemetry. So we capture you know, event logs, packets, uh, keystrokes, really anything that might be a useful artifact for a hunt or a forensic investigation, or again, just uh, detections in your SOC. Uh, and that enables us to build a pretty large detection repo. We've got you know, thousands of attacks that we've captured that constantly grows. We've got thousands of detections that we've built uh, that that also constantly grows. And so customers can basically, with a button click, uh, push good detection content to whatever SIM or EDR they happen to be using, uh, including the majority. So, um, yeah, it's been pretty revolutionary for the detection engineering field, and it's something I'm excited to talk about. I think we'll probably get to uh, that a little bit later in the conversation. But, um, yeah, most of the, the most widely deployed SIMs and EDRs are supported, and so customers can really level up their defenses um, just by subscribing to SnapAttack. 
That's very cool. It's a real force multiplier for for MSSPs and organizations who maybe don't have giant security teams. It kind of brings that world-class intel and, and makes it available right away. Yeah, and MSSPs specifically have this problem uniquely. Um, I know that from experience. Um, MSSPs are tasked with securing you know, many organizations, um, you know, my former MSSP, um, where I actually happen to be today, um, we, we had hundreds of customers and well, I think 10 different uh, SIMS and EDR platforms. So if you do the math on that, you have to have expertise across such a wide array of tooling uh, to really have consistency in threat detection. Um, it's extremely challenging and you, you, you basically either solve it through people um, and expertise across multiple tools or you solve it through technology. And um, technology is definitely the more efficient way to go about doing it. But outside of Snap Attack, there really isn't uh, a good option for um, that sort of thing. So um, we're doing something different, and uh, we're definitely excited about it. Really cool. Really cool. Um, I'm always interested in how people came to their career in cybersecurity. Um, when did you first develop your interest in computing, and, and how did that transform into you know securing the Internet? Um, sure. So it, this might be cliched, but I definitely followed in my father's footsteps. Um, oddly enough, uh, he was pretty early in information security, kind of before it was really a discipline. He's uh, federal government for 47 years, I think. Oh, wow. um, and uh, so we always had computers in the house when I was a kid. I can remember these you know, giant compact computers that had the tiny little uh, you know, green screen on them and the big five and a quarter inch disks that we would use. And so uh, at the age of probably, I don't know, seven, I was playing with those things. Um, and then, you know, when PCs came out, I really enjoyed uh, building my own computers. So I did that for, you know, quite quite a long time. In fact, I, st I still do it. I might not admit that too openly, um, but I've built a lot of computers. I've got probably eight or nine kicking around the house right now, various different gaming machines or home theater automation, stuff like that. Um, but, you know, the cybersecurity element of it... Um, I, you know, I, I think it was kind of happenstance that I wound up in that. One of my first jobs um, out of school, I was working for a large airline, and um, I was kind of just a jack of all trades for them from a technology standpoint. This was the late '90s, and you know, I, I think at that time, you know, I was probably 19, 20. Um, people had uh, at least. I always say this, there was less expertise around uh, technology than there is today. That's probably obvious. And so um, because I, I like tinkering of stuff and learning things, and I, I you know, I don't, this probably sounds arrogant, but I, I probably learned things a little bit uh, quickly. Um, they just threw a bunch of stuff at me. And one of the cool things that I did for that organization was I built their um, risk management intranet site. And so this is a global airline, you know, multi-billion dollar airline that they had a 19-year-old kid build, build their <laughs> intranet site for risk management. So uh, that was kind of the start of it. From there, um, I did a lot of other stuff around like database administration, um, just, you know, sort of um, systems engineering, systems administration. Um, and a lot of that at that time um, required you to do the security job, too. It wasn't really a separate discipline. Um, and so I got a lot of exposure to, uh, you know, security um, concepts uh, just because of the work that was thrown at me. My first real security job that was, you know, truly security was uh, through a large uh, defense uh, integration company, uh, Northrop Grumman, um, where I was tasked with uh, basically managing the network from a security perspective for uh, Walter Reed Hospital um, and that whole organization, which is where the Navy and the Marine Corps um, and also the, you know, the president, the vice president go for uh, medical care. So I ran all of their Cisco firewalls, um, all their email security and stuff like that. Um, and that was a really interesting job because I, that one really kind of showed me that the mission is, is really important. Um, mm -hmm. we're, you know, we're doing a serious thing. 
Um, and obviously, you know, the military guys uh, obviously took it seriously. Um, from there, I, I moved to a different um, division of the Navy called the Bureau of Medicine and Surgery, which is also in D.C., where, where I live. And um, there I did a similar thing uh, around like network administration. So, you know, I got a lot of expertise in firewalls and again, sort of exchange security. This is, you know, way long time ago. So that stuff's probably way outdated. I haven't had my hands on Cisco iOS in a while. Um, maybe thankfully, um, but um, and or exchange. And with the news this last couple of weeks around exchange vulnerabilities, I'm glad I'm not yeah. an exchange administrator. Um, but again, that was at Northrop Grumman. And um, a couple of years into that, so this is um, you know 2001. You're really just after 9/11. Um, I got pulled into a project um, that was focused on building out the national 911 call system for a North African country. Uh, that was really uh, experiencing some serious uh, terrorism issues. Um, Al-Qaeda had a, a really big presence there. And so we were contracted to build out this uh, basically emergency management system for this entire country. And I was enterprise engineer on that. So um, that involved a lot of different things, uh, you know, everything from building the servers physically, uh, because the company made a decision to buy components instead of completed servers. Um, so we had to, you know, install chips, install memory wow. for thousands of servers, uh, and then even like racking them. So building out the racks, getting all the cabling looking nice, all that sort of jazz. Um, we did that uh, here um, in uh, Maryland, actually, and then shipped everything over. And then installing it on site was really interesting because, um, again, you know, we were there doing something that, you know, some adversaries probably didn't really want us to do. So we had the gendarmerie um, basically detailed us or detailed to us what we were building out sites. And we built something like 600, I think it was 607 sites, um, wow. including like microwave tires and data centers, et cetera. Wow. And just built it from the ground up. Um, that sounds super fun. <laughs> it's a really interesting project. And, yeah. and so to the point that I made earlier around, you know, the mission's important, that one really taught me that because here we were doing something that, you know, really could save lives uh, for an entire country and really modernize the entire country. And so it was really fulfilling um, it really, um, I think that was kind of the start of my real interest in, in doing what we do now. That's, that's really cool. Yeah. And I was going to mention too, the mission in, in that particular instance, it's, it's gotta be so palpable. Um, yeah, very, very. And the people were very appreciative of the work, obviously that we were doing with them because, you know, the, the country lacked the expertise, like most, most of the developing world, um, mm -hmm. certainly at that time lacked, um, technology expertise. And so there was an element of training that went into that too. Um, which was also pretty fulfilling. Yeah, really making a difference in in like their day to day lives. Yeah. Um, if you could go back and give you twenty five year old you uh, some advice, what would it be? Oh boy, um, man, I don't know. Uh, and I I feel pretty good about where I'm at, so I I, I might have made some of the same decisions. Um, maybe I would have zigged when I should have zagged in a couple of cases, right. but. Overall, um, I think the most important thing for a young person that's looking at cybersecurity uh, to think about is um, don't think of it as just, you know, a, a way to make money. Um, obviously, cybersecurity pays well. I think we all know that. But the people that I've found uh, to be either the best in the business or the ones who get the furthest are the ones who are really passionate about it. And I, I think passion really, really matters uh, in this industry, maybe more than most. Um, because again, that mission aspect of it, we're fighting the bad guy. And without us, you know, companies got a business, literally people could lose their lives. And uh, I just don't think that should be lost in anybody. So, you know, that passion means you do your own research. I'm a threat intelligence junkie still. I mean, I don't get my hands dirty in incidents anymore, although I really do miss it. 
Um, but I still keep up because um, you just have to. This, this industry changes so fast. I mean, technology in general changes quickly, but I think no discipline in technology changes faster than cybersecurity. And um, you know, if you're not keeping up, you're being left behind. And so that's that's really the most important thing. I'd say just dive in, learn as much as you possibly can. I'm also fortunate um, that I have had a broad set of experiences. Um, and while I have some specialties, I think that breadth of knowledge has also been really helpful. So I would, you know, I would probably recommend, you know, to myself, um, you know, do that, uh, same thing again there. <laughs> okay. Well, that's great. <laughs> I, I wish all of us could say the same thing. Um, you must've started your career right before the dot-com bubble burst. If I'm doing the math, right. What, what, yes. what was it like coming into technology at a time when it looked like, this great area to be to to like layoffs and, and just I don't know if everybody who's watching this understands how how big that was when it when it collapsed back in 2000 2001 I guess it was definitely a bloodbath uh, no question yeah. about that and um, you know I guess my experience there was probably a little bit different than others because I I didn't work for a technology company and the technology companies were the ones that really got nuked um, I was working for the federal government the defense okay. uh, you yeah. know industrial complex and it. We were insulated because, you know, the uh, Department of Defense doesn't stop spending money, um, pretty much regardless of what the economic situation is. I think just look around. Um, so, I, like I said, I was insulated, but certainly I had a lot of friends that were either working for, you know, companies that went out of business. Um, MCI was one. I had a bunch of friends that that company is local to Northern Virginia or was local to Northern Virginia. And so a lot of people definitely lost their jobs. Um, it was definitely, you know, scary time, but, um, you know, that's not the only time that I've, uh, kind of looked at a major, uh, financial market crash and said, I'm going to do something different. 2008 was another one of those. Yeah. Um, that's market, about when I started my career. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, 2008 was nuts. Um, at that time, oddly enough. So let me back up a little bit. So after we finished that project that I was talking about in Northern Africa, um, I came back and wanted to um, expand my skill set outside of just, you know, uh, military and, and DOD. And so did some financial uh, industry consulting and did that for several years. Um, so did a lot of different things at that point around, like uh, a lot of penetration testing. Then it was fun. I enjoyed doing that. Um, it's, so for anybody that's thinking about being a penetration tester and thinking, man, I want to be Mr. Robot. Um, I just a couple of words of caution. It's like days and days of tedium. Um, punctuated by like moments of exalted joy. Um, so you, you gotta be looking for those adrenaline hits and that's what that's all about. It's fun, I enjoy doing it. Yeah. Um, but I also did a lot of consulting on the defensive side. And uh, that's really where I've spent most of my career is consulting on, on defense. Um, but in financial, uh, most of my projects there um, outside of the pen testing stuff were focused on building out um, IDS infrastructure um, and also uh, file integrity monitoring was a big thing back then. Um, so did a lot of work uh, in that domain. And then in, I think it was 2007, um, I took a contract as an independent contractor with uh, Freddie Mac. Um, so Freddie Mac was the pseudo government agency or is that uh, you know manages part of the the, the, the mortgage industry, um, and what happened in 2008 wow. uh, definitely impacted them quite a bit. So that that was a bloodbath, and at that point um, they cut so so many of their staff. And again, I was a contractor, so it was pretty easy to get get rid of me. Um, and it, you know, it wasn't like a non-performance thing; it was just the company yeah. had effectively lost all its money and needed to do something. So at that point, I said to myself, you know what, Paul. You could probably do this yourself. So um, decided to start my own company in 2008, right in the middle of you know the Great Recession, um, and that's you know when I first started my first MSSP, 
which was called True Shield, and uh, did that for the subsequent 10 years. So, you know, wow. um, those moments of like economic strife can also be opportunities for, you know, people that are willing to take a risk. And that's definitely part of entrepreneurship is, is being a, a calculated risk taker and, you know, failing fast if you're going to, course directing where you can. And uh, again, I'm really fortunate to, I guess, have been able to do that or have been supported by people that help me make those, those right decisions. Yeah, you've been CISO and CEO of two MSSPs prior to joining Snap Attack. Um, what are some of the major challenges MSSPs are facing today? And what solutions are there to solve for what I understand to be an increase in the global MSSP market? Yeah, um, I think MSSPs and MDRs have you know one of the hardest jobs in cybersecurity because they're tasked with managing such a diverse set of challenges in their customer base. Um, and I'll, I'll back up to my original company. So when we first started that, we were doing, uh, we started doing again, you know, uh, uh, government consulting. And so there's a lot of just focus on, you know, kind of CISO management consulting. Um, I did that for FAA and DOT. Um, that's actually where I met two of my colleagues here at Snap Attack. So I've known those guys for 15 years or so. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to come here. Um, <clears throat> but after a couple of years, we pivoted to the MSSP job and started doing that for uh, government customers and uh, uh, private sector customers. And their needs are different. Their technology stacks are different. Um, but you have to be able to deliver consistent results, uh, regardless of the nuances and variables uh, in your customer environments. And that is really, really challenging. So just the technology problem, I kind of touched on earlier around being able to create, you know, that detection outcome, that security outcome in very diverse environments. Um, that's a huge challenge. And it requires a lot of skill. And I think that's the other really big challenge that MSSPs have. Um, we all know that there's a dearth of, of people, there's a dearth of talent um, in our industry. And, you know, it's really, really hard to find and retain the right talent. And certainly, you know, when I first started that company, um, you know, again, remember, I'm in Northern Virginia and there is a, a huge amount of cyber talent in Northern Virginia. It's sort of cyber Silicon Valley um, because right. of like AOL was started there. And there's so many uh, data centers in Ashburn, Virginia. You can't throw a rock without hitting a data center. So there's tons and tons of talent there. Um, but there's also tons of employers. And for a startup like mine that was bootstrapped, um, I just simply did not have the, the financial wherewithal to match pay for you know, one of the big companies. So what we wound up being kind of the training grounds for a lot of the other larger companies around where we developed relationships with um, universities. And so we would bring in people with you know, very little experience, had a, had a technical degree, um, had some curiosity and the passion. It was one of the things we looked for. And then we trained them to be you know, cybersecurity analysts or cybersecurity consultants. And then you know, pretty commonly 18, 24 months in, um, that person would get poached and they'd be offered double what we were paying them. And it was impossible for us to keep up with that. So that's a huge challenge for anybody because it's not just the like the business cost of, of having to go and recruit and hire, um, but there's also a really significant customer impact when you lose uh, that talent because they, you know, part of the MSSP job really is developing a relationship with your customer. Um, right. the, the whole thing is about relationships at the end of the day. You're, you're playing a team sport. And uh, when you know, that relationship capital leaves, it impairs, you know, your, your customer's relationship as well. Um, and then also outside of just the relationship capital that you lose when somebody leaves, there's a, just a, a tremendous amount of institutional knowledge that you, that individual had learned over the course of supporting that customer that you then have to, you know, indoctrinate the next person to, to get up to the same speed. And um, if you have kind of that revolving door problem with talent, 
um, you're going to struggle. And and we definitely did at times. There, and you know, I'll be very candid about that. There were times when you know we lost a really key person, and it, it certainly hurt us. It hurt our customer. Um, and uh, yeah, those are really challenging things to go through. But those are really t- the two key things I see. Um, and that you know, I guess the third is that threats do not stop. Um, yeah. So. Um, I'll, I'll say when I started that company, I did have a full head of hair um, and my beard was <laughs> significantly less gray. Uh, but when you run a 24-7 company, um, you got to be 24-7. And so, um, you know, there there were times when we were, you know, I personally was up all night working incidents. Um, you know, I still was doing that even at my last last gig where I was uh, CISO rather than CEO. But when the buck stops with you, you, you just have to be in it. Um, and that's also where kind of the passion thing comes from. But that's a real challenge. And, um, you know, I, frankly, I, I don't miss uh, the 24 uh, seven gig. Um, it's nice to have a little bit of time for personal life. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the, the role turnover thing with staff is something I've heard from other MSSPs. And it's such a hard thing to contend with because, uh, yeah, literally doubling people's salaries after they gain some experience because there is such a dearth of talent. So yeah. um, interesting problem set to try and plan for, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a couple of things. I mean, first off, I think, you know, that I always had the notion that it would it'd be more attractive for uh, someone to come that wants to be in cybersecurity, work for a cybersecurity company rather than do cybersecurity for, you know, name your other industry, a bank, um, mm-hmm. although the bank is probably going to pay more. Uh, certainly, that was one thing we talked to our team about is that they got exposed to a, a much wider array um, of cybersecurity challenges than what, than what they would have working for a single company. Uh, for a consultant, that's just hyper, hyper valuable. You, you, having exposure to many different problem sets, uh, mm-hmm. developing solutions to many different complex problems, uh, the right individual is going to be very attracted to that. The other element of, of you know, talent retention is culture. Um, and you, that's something that, that you just, you can't, you know, overlook. You have to have uh, a culture that, you know, recognizes uh, performance, um, supports uh, development, um, and, and that sort of thing, if you don't have that, you're definitely going to have the talent turnover problem. So that's, that's certainly something to keep focused on too. Good advice. Um, at Lima Charlie, we think the future of cybersecurity as a practice is going to continue to absorb lessons from software engineering, the rise of DevOps and continuous integration, all the good stuff that's come out of computer science and software engineering. Um, if you had to predict what the industry is going to look like in five years, which direction do you think it's going to go? Well, I, I completely agree with that philosophy. Um, I think there's a lot to learn from like the SDLC uh, that can be applied to cybersecurity. Um, you know, the area that we focus on um, is detection development lifecycle and the threat management lifecycle. So um, what we enable is basically that CICD approach to detection engineering um, and really treating detections as production code. Um, just like you would if you're pushing a release uh, to your your application. So your store thing. to GitHub, using pull requests to review the changes before they go into production and stuff like that. Exactly that, right? So um, SnapAttack enables that. So we basically become that repository and the workflow to, to do that process. But it, you know, think of it just like you're creating a, a, you know, any piece of software code. You, you start with a requirement, you develop a strategy, you develop the code, you test it, you iterate against it. Um, you validate that it works, and then you push it to production. And then you've got to maintain it, um, and eventually you might have to decommission it. And you really need to be thinking about detection engineering like that because um, threats change over time. Detection should similarly uh, change over time. Um, and you need to have rigor and discipline in how you manage uh, that process because it just, again, it creates a better detection outcome. And it and it also you know sort of inculcates your security operations team 
with um, you know, a framework that they can follow that enables them to be more efficient. Um, and also the quality control that you get of an approach like that is just much better than having like the engineer who manages the SIM also be the one who writes the detections and kind of does it in a vacuum. Um, I've seen that fail uh, pretty dramatically. But one of the things that, that you, you benefit from if you take an approach like that for specifically the detection development lifecycle is that your SOC um, or whomever's, you know, reading the alerts or looking at the, the pane of glass is going to have less junk to filter through. There's less to triage because you've done a better job of the validation. You've done a better job of writing a detection and you know effectively mm. what you're likely to get Right, The tuning aspect is built into this. Um, and so you have an opportunity, especially with Snap Attack, to tune before you even release uh, to production. But then you can iterate on that as you learn more um, over time. And that's that's I, I certainly think that that's the way the industry is going to go. Detection engineering is a discipline that's been around for you know a little while. It's, it's sort of gained a name um, in the last couple of years. Detection as code has helped that quite a bit, which is basically the way that we translate detection logic um, in a higher order language down to whatever SIM or whatever EDR it needs to work in. We have our, our backend compiles down that logic into the right syntax so that it will work in Lima Charlie or it will work in Sentinel One or CrowdStrike or you know, name your tool. Um, yep. And that that requires you to maintain that code base. And so that that sort of application, I think, is going to progress further. We're going to see more companies doing something similar. Um, I think we're going to also see more of like the enterprises um, adopting that approach and having uh, that be, you know, a practitioner, you know, in and of itself, a discipline in and of itself. People will hire detection engineers um, to do just that, to focus exclusively on that, especially those that are at sort of the far end of the bell curve in terms of maturity. Very cool. Um, thanks for that. That's uh, very much aligns with what our thinking. And I think it's um, it's not you can't deny that that's the way this is going and the benefits that come from that approach. Um, I'm really excited about this question. Uh, I have it from a good source that you're an experienced ransomware negotiator. And uh, I find that incredibly fascinating. And I imagine it's super high pressure um, in something that I would never want to take charge of. So can, can you describe what these situations are generally generally like and maybe offer some advice for someone who might find themselves in that position unexpectedly? Sure. Um, yeah, uh, it's always interesting. Um, you know, ransomware incidents, I've worked too many of them. Um, I think, you know, many incident responders have worked more, um, but the ones that I've worked have been always, they're always interesting. Um, there's a huge amount of adrenaline involved in that. Um, a ton of stress to to your to your point. So when you're in a situation like that, a victim organization has been ransomed, and you're called in to get them through it, basically get them operational as quickly as possible um, with as least pain as possible. And so almost always, I think in fact always uh, in those situations, there's been a war room where the CEO, the president, the CFO, legal counsel, um, and insurance are, are all collaborating um, to you know to figure out what do we do here. And so the job that you know the uh, forensic investigator, that team, or the incident response lead, which was generally my role, um, would have is, is basically provide facts. Uh, here's what we see. Here's what we think happened. Um, here's your likelihood of being able to recover uh, without paying the ransom. And here are your options. And then leave it to them to make the business decision. So a lot of people ask me, you know, would you recommend somebody pay a ransom? And, you know, it's, I can't answer a yes or no to that because every situation is different and it's always going to be a business uh, decision based upon those various different uh, nuances. Um, if a company has a choice between paying a ransom 
for a million dollars or going out of business, I can tell you what they're going to do, especially if they've got an insurance policy. And I'm not going to judge them for making that decision. Um, what I will do is try to be you know, their best advocate in um, both reducing the amount of money that they're going to have to pay to the digital terrorist that's holding them ransom, um, and then also give them as good uh, guidance as I can. So when you get that ransom note on your desktop, it's usually going to have like a scary threat that's going to say, we stole terabytes of your data, and um, you're obviously all locked up. So unless you pay us, uh, in Bitcoin, you know, you're not getting your, your data back and we're going to leak it. Um, so you better get in touch with us. And usually the way that they ask you to get in touch with them is a uh, like a dark web URL um, or sometimes it's like a chat, uh, like they use talks and some things like that. I've seen also anonymous emails like ProtonMail, um, but usually it's going to be the dark web uh, onion URL. And so when you go to that, um, you're going to be presented usually with like a chat uh, application, like what you might find on a website that has like a chat bot. And um, you, know, you pop in there and uh, you'll see something like admin waiting for your reply. You type in, you know, hi, um, trying to understand what we can do to, to get through this. Um, and then you'll get some responses. They're gonna start with uh, some pretty high numbers. Um, pretty much every time, you know, I've, I've had to do this, we've been able to get them down to like 10% or 20% of their initial demand, um, but it takes time to do that. So really the strategy, it's its very much a psychological game because the person on the other side of that screen is, is you know, frequently not the actual attacker. Um, mm-hmm. usually, usually they've got sort of teams that do different things within these criminal organizations. Some are actually writing the ransomware and making it available to the affiliate community. That affiliate community might be the ones that are actually victimizing the organization. Um, and in some, t- in some cases, they may also have a third set of what, what's called initial access brokers who are actually breaking in and then selling the access to the ransomware mm-hmm. affiliate. But the person you're negotiating with, um, they're generally going to be a little lower on the totem pole. Uh, and they're, they're looking at this almost like a salesperson looks at a sales funnel. Um, so they're trying to close the deal, right? So whatever gets this deal done and there's a cost of sale impact and there's also, they, they understand that time kills deals. So if you think about it from the business perspective, like your job is to buy time, right? Buying time for not just uh, the forensic team to understand how they got in and can we block them from getting back in and can we understand the full scope of their access? You definitely have to buy them time for that because if you move too quickly and um, basically restore operations too quickly, the adversary could still have access through some means of persistence or through an unpatched vulnerability that you didn't realize was there. Um, so you have to be able to buy the time. And you also have to keep them at the table. Um, so the the sort of the approach is to let them know that you're working on it. Um, you're, you're definitely trying to make uh, a deal with them. Usually it's like your, your demand is up here, we're way down here, uh, we've got to find some middle ground. And uh, don't let on that it's a third party that is performing the negotiation with them because they, they really don't like that. Um, the other thing that you can't do, um, and I've actually seen some people make, make this mistake, is be aggressive um, in those conversations. Um, because you know what I've seen happen is you know, the name calling and things like that. And um, the bad guy at that point is either going to disengage completely and you're going to have no choice but to just recover from, from the ground up um, or they'll just escalate the ransom. Uh, and that has happened. Um, but usually, you know, again, if you keep them at the table, I've seen, you know, negotiations take a couple of days. I, I think I had the longest one was a couple of weeks. And it took it took a lot of time to uh, just interacting with them to keep them patient and at the table. Um, but, you know, one one thing, anybody that's interested in, um, you know, looking into that as uh, a discipline, I would recommend reading the book Never Split the Difference. It's a really good book, um, regardless of, of ransom or negotiation or, or not. I think it's more of like a, a sales oriented book around negotiations. But it's it, the what I learned in that 
was was just extremely impactful to how to interact with you know this adversary that I'm trying to get in agreement with. And, um, and so there's diplomacy, there's psychology, there's you know again also just trying to reduce the tension as much as possible. But while you're interacting with that adversary, remember also that every time you have a conversation with them, you're going to have to report that back to the CEO, to the CFO, to insurance, to counsel, and that war room is just incredibly stressful. These people are fighting for their lives. Um, So what's funny is, you know, obviously insurance has a goal of um, minimizing their payout, right? Insurance got completely nuked by ransomware over the last couple of years. So they have to uh, lower costs. Um, Whereas the victim is saying to themselves, I have a million dollar insurance policy. These guys are asking for a million dollars. And if I pay them, I can get out of this tomorrow. Why are we negotiating with them? Yeah. Why don't we just pay them the million dollars? I have the insurance policy. Um, and so there's always a little bit of a, um, I'm not going to call it gamesmanship, maybe brinksmanship of, of who blinks first. And um, it's always just challenging to get through. But I can tell you the relief um, of getting through them, getting the, comp- you know, the company and the reward of getting the company back up operational. Uh, it's, it's just, it is really rewarding. Um, but, you know, a lot of uh, challenging situations, even in the middle of that. So let's say you agreed to pay. What I've seen happen is your insurance policy is, a, is what's called a reimbursement policy. So basically you're paying it and then insurance is going to reimburse you. So if you, you agree to a million dollar ransom, uh, you got to come up with a million bucks. Um, and we all know that ransomware incidents mo- most frequently happen on weekends. So you, if you probably don't have access to a million dollars uh, to wire or to convert to Bitcoin, um, you know, over the weekend. Yeah. Um, and so there, there, are, there are other challenges within that process that people, you know, just yeah, unless you've been through it, you just don't know those exist. Yeah, that's a lot of liquidity to come up with in, yeah. in like for a couple of days. Um, do do have you ever encountered situations where people pay the ransom and then the the bad actors act in bad faith and and still you know release the data or keep everything encrypted, or are they I, generally honorable once they get paid? Well, they're not honorable. I'm not going to well, say that. Yeah, for it's the wrong not. word, maybe. Yeah, but but I will say that they are careful about their reputations. Oddly, um, because if they are seen to do what you described and sort of double or triple extort their victims, which certainly some of them do, there's no question about that. But if they are known to do that, when they're dealing with, you know, a skilled negotiator or skilled person who's been, you know, in the trenches on ransomware incidents, you know, we should we generally will know who we're we're up against because we'll be able to look at the, the ransomware strain and we might know that they're known, even if you pay the ransom to come back in and do it again. So that will that will inform the decisions to whether or not we want to pay it. So they are careful about managing that reputation, but it certainly does happen. I think uh, what's probably more frequent, and um, maybe this is a little conjecture, but I, I think it's true. The initial access brokers, um, they have, you know, they can sell that access to as many actors as they would like. And so once they break in, they're going to offer that up for sale to anybody that will pay for it. And then other adversaries can come back in. So again, it's really important uh, to make sure that you've done the work, um, locking down however that initial access happened, make sure that there is no persistent access within the environment because that's you know very, very frequent. Um, and then hopefully the customer is going to be at a pretty good state of health. But the process of recovering from a really serious ransomware incident, it's super, super cumbersome because you generally what we've done, you know, let's let's take, I'll give you one example, retail organization, 
Um, their stores actually weren't ransomed, but all of the corporate infrastructure was. Um, and so all the stores were operating kind of headless uh, for, for the period of time that we were uh, trying to get these companies through this. But they had been so widely compromised um, through just you know bad passwords, bad patch management, things like that, that our recommendation was we need to reconstitute this environment entirely from the ground up. What we're going to do is we're going to report you to the cloud because it's easier for us to stand up resources in the cloud. Um, in the process of doing that, we're going to create a, a sort of a middle ground um, where we're going to port your data over, make sure you know it's clean, and then we can restore it to a known good environment. So there was a, like a very lengthy process, cumbersome process, and the customer you know in the middle of that saying, I got to get back operational, you know, move faster, move faster, but you can't move faster, um, either through technical limitations or, again, just in the abundance of caution that you're going to leave them in a good state. Um, but, yeah, it's always challenging, but it, it's definitely an adrenaline rush. And like I said, I do kind of miss it. Um, but, yeah, for another time. Yeah, it's just the crazy stakes. I couldn't imagine being on the negotiating table. It's a little little too much stress for me, I think. <laughs> um so I guess this is going back to some of the experience you spoke about earlier. I imagine it's tied in. Um, but you, in the past, you did a bunch of work with the Science and Technology Policy Center for Development. Um, can you talk about that a little? Yeah. Uh, so that organization was a um, or is um, you know sort of a nonprofit that's focused on delivering uh, security and technology um, expertise to the developing world, and it was really focused on uh, African nations. And um, you know that. The project that I, I talked about earlier in Northern Africa um, kind of teed me up for that, I think. But also, interestingly, um, and probably surprisingly, when I first started my company through some relationships, this is probably 2009, 2010, through some relationships that we had, um, we ended up winning uh, actually quite a lot of work uh, in Africa, um, in Rwanda and Tanzania and Zambia and Zimbabwe and really all over sort of Eastern and Southern Africa. Um, and our job... Uh, typically was to train uh, the governments on cybersecurity. Um, so we would um, deploy in, we you know, obviously produce a, a pretty significant set of trainings and then host um, you know, training events, seminars, where we'd have hundreds of people come in, basically representatives from you know, across the government, across the military. They'd come in and get sort of a foundational 101 level understanding of cybersecurity, um, sort of you know, what are the threats, what are the risks, what are the strategies to defend yourselves. And then we would do breakout sessions with the the more technical team so we could get into the weeds and start talking about what security controls should you be implementing, how should you be implementing them. Um, we also helped implement a lot of them. So some of those organizations, we stood up their continuous monitoring. Um, we stood up their GRC, things like that. Those were, those were new concepts to them at that time. And uh, they, they were really thankful to have um, you know, Western expertise come in and get them up to speed uh, because they, you know, would have, they, they looked at it as, as effectively an opportunity to leapfrog. And much of the developing world did uh, have that notion. And it really manifested. There's a couple of other disciplines where I can speak to that, that this exact thing happened. So Africa in general had no physical, you know, infrastructure, like the wires that just didn't mm-hmm. exist. And so rather than go and build all of that physical infrastructure, they adopted wireless. And so the wireless penetration in the developing world is actually higher than what it is in, in the developed world, or at least it was at that time. It may have balanced out since then. Um, but they really adopted, um, you know, uh, uh, wireless technology. And so they have a, a lot of custom applications that they built upon that. Um, and they looked at cybersecurity in a similar way that were, you know, in 2010, 2011, they were coming in fresh. And they thought to themselves, 
I think rightly so, that, you know, rather than go through this same progression that ever, you know, the rest of the world has had to go through to get to where they're at today, let's just get there. Um, and so that leapfrog, I think, helped them quite a bit because, you know, you might not think it, but the threats that they face are you know, numerous and, and pretty interesting from a cyber criminal standpoint. Um, also, some nation state activity as well. Uh, China has a lot of interest in Africa for a variety of reasons. The Bridge and Road Initiative is, is one of them. Um, as, a, as a means of gaming um, sort of diplomatic presence that gives them a geopolitical advantage around resources. Uh, but they also have a lot of interest in controlling the narrative, um, which is probably known to everybody. Um, so they, they leverage that. And they're not the only ones that do that sort of thing. Um, additionally, on the inverse side of that, um, cyber criminals, uh, they have some homes uh, in Africa. And I think you know probably the one people uh, probably recognize the most is sort of the Nigerian Prince scam. Um, and so there certainly are uh, phishing and um, vishing, so call uh, phishing, um, organizations uh, in Nigeria. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's certainly a discipline there. And so the, the, there's always sort of um, maybe unforeseen consequences through those leapfrog events where they, there was a lot of positive benefits, um, but there was also some negative outcomes in that it gave, you know, maybe the um, more, I don't know, uh, ethically impaired individuals with the technological you know, sort of understanding and ability to do bad things. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, good tools can be used for good or, or for bad. Um, but that, that was a lot of what we did uh, there. Um, and that actually created the opportunity for me to join uh, the Science uh, and Technology Center, uh, Policy Center for Development. And so that was uh, focused on, um, again, sort of broadening our reach there. Um, a lot of the same ideas around let's help these, these countries leapfrog. Um, we looked at various different countries from uh, Western Africa, like Liberia, uh, the Cote d'Ivoire, um, other really impoverished countries that, that um, you know, saw technology as a way to pull themselves out of poverty. And that was really the, the key focus. Oh, that sounds like really rewarding work and interesting how it's tied into your, to your earlier work. So yeah. pretty cool. Uh, we're almost there. Uh, this one's for me. Uh, in a previous conversation, you let it slip that you have some hobbies. And I believe one of them was related to automobiles. Can you tell me about your love affair with the automobile? <laughs> uh, sure. Um, I, I, I don't lack hobbies. I probably have too, too many hobbies. Um, what's funny is when you have a lot of hobbies, uh, sometimes you're half-assed on, you know, uh, all of them. My dad says I'm four-assed, uh, which means I go too far in on my hobbies. And that's probably a fair um, report out. Um, but yeah, cars. So I've always had a uh, love for cars. And, you know, this is funny. I'm going to tie this back to my dad again. Um, so my dad was the kind of guy and is the kind of guy who uh, likes to do his own work. And so I can remember being like nine and changing the brakes on the family minivan. Um, and so I, you know, it was something that came naturally to me. I like getting my hands dirty. Um, I like seeing how things work. I like taking stuff apart and put it back together. Uh, that's, that's probably also why I enjoy building computers. Um, it's probably also why I enjoy doing the cybersecurity thing, especially the forensic investigation side, because you have to just pull things apart and then reconstruct it. Um, so yeah, I, I'd say that's it. The, um, my first real car project, um, so I had my first car uh, in high school was a Pontiac Fiero that my dad bought me, which he probably shouldn't have done, that um, ended up abandoned on the side of the road in northern Minnesota in the middle of winter because it died on me, which was a scary moment. But thankfully, Minnesotans are nice and a good Samaritan got me where I needed to be. Um, after that, the first car that I bought with my own money, um, this is going to sound bad, but it was a, it was a Porsche. Um, it was a piece of crap Porsche, though, one that really needed a ton and ton of work. Um, and I loved that car. I mean, it was the coolest car. It was a high school. What, kid. what was the model? I don't know much, but I have a couple favorites. 
it was a 944, which is the bastard oh, nice. child of Porsche. But uh, they're fun little cars. They're not like uh, super high speed, but they handle extremely well. Um, and I've actually had uh, a, at least one of uh, 944 since then. Um, so I still have um, two currently. Um, one is uh, sort of a tube frame race car um, that doesn't really resemble a 944 anymore. The other one of those is uh, kind of a street slash track car that makes about 650 horsepower, something like that. Um, it's oh. fun. Um, I also have a uh, Porsche Boxster that I have a 911 engine in, uh, 911 GT3 suspension, all kinds of nerdy stuff. I can tell you about them. Um, and then I have a uh, uh, SUV, a Porsche Cayenne, um, which was my gift to myself after I sold my company. I went and bought that the next day. So, oh, very yeah. cool. I, so I'm a Porsche guy, as you can probably tell, and I uh, probably always will be. But um, yeah. I like other things about, um, you know, motorsports, too. I'm a huge Formula One fan. Um, I've been a Formula One fan for as long as I can remember. Um, I'm a Ferrari guy when it comes to Formula One, which means as of today, I'm a little bit disappointed at the state of the championship because Max Verstappen won it this weekend. Um, what are you going to do? Um, but, yeah, like I said, I like taking things apart, learning how they work. Um, one of those cars that I mentioned, well, really all of them, I've, I've either completely ripped them apart, like bolt by bolt, and put them back together. Uh, one, um, I built not just the engine and all of the associated, um, you know, hard parts like suspension and transmission. I also built a computer for that. So from, like, chipset, um, soldering on the microchips and the different sensors, wow. that sort of stuff, wiring it all up, uh, that was a cool project. I really enjoyed doing that. But again, it's tinkering, you know, and uh, I think that's that's a big part of what uh, what drives me. Just trying to learn how stuff works, uh, getting my hands dirty. I, you know, I really do find uh, that sort of thing to be very meditative. Um, mm-hmm. Getting in the garage, uh, getting your hands dirty, and, and it's it's actually similar for me in another hobby, which is gardening. I love growing spicy peppers and just sitting up in my garden for you know an hour or two. Very very therapeutic. So I guess that's a big part of it for me. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I need from from the car aspect. I appreciate them for the design aesthetic, but the gardening, uh, I'm very much into as well. And uh, agree with you about the uh, meditative aspect. And I almost feel like there's something very much tied to our DNA about having your hands in the dirt and Mm -hmm. pulling food out like that. So very cool. Okay, so this is my last one. And uh, as wide as you want, or as narrow as you want, uh, any predictions for the future? Um, predictions for the future. So, um, ransomware is not going anywhere. Um, I think we're going to see more focus on the direct theft of cryptocurrency. Um, and I think that will be a pivot the, uh, cyber criminal ecosystem makes. We see a lot of nation state activity, uh, specifically, uh, North Korea, uh, focused on doing that today. And the reason I say that is because the sums that we were talking about, uh, being able to directly steal are just colossal you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in one op uh, rather than a, a couple million dollars in a ransom, you know, do that a hundred times to equate to the same amount of money. And the issue there is um, security in the, in the you know, sort of the blockchain cryptocurrency Web3 industry is not really well understood yet. Uh, it's certainly not well implemented. And so, you know, what I've seen happen frequently is when you have like a blockchain bridge that enables you to change one token on one blockchain to a different token on another blockchain that goes through a piece of software. That software is vulnerable. Every piece of software is vulnerable. And a lot of attacks have been focused on those blockchain bridges. Um, and I, I don't think that's going to stop. I think it's only going to increase. Even with the, you know, sort of the um, the crypto crash um, or, you know, uh, the rise and fall and just the, the uh, sort of volatility of cryptocurrency in general, um, I have to think the adversaries are looking at the numbers and saying, you know, if we focus on that, 
we can apply our same skills and in one op get you know $100 million windfall. Um, I also think we could see a similar um, you know, affiliate kind of approach or an as-a-service approach to that sort of thing, where when somebody has a vulnerability uh, against one of those blockchain bridges, um, perhaps they you know, sell it to or lease it uh, to multiple different bad actors. Uh, the problem with that is uh, much like ransomware. Ransomware is intended to be smash and grabs, very, very visible. Uh, the, the victim knows uh, what's going on. So very similar in a uh, cryptocurrency theft, the victim knows that they've been victimized. Um, so it's a little bit diff- more difficult to apply uh, sort of that as a service model to it, but I couldn't, I wouldn't be surprised to see it happen. Um, I also wouldn't be surprised to see other sanctioned nation states adopt that approach that North Korea has. Um, so when you look at, um, you know, some obviously sanctioned nation states like Russia, uh, like Iran, uh, they've got to generate income somehow. I'm, I'm definitely a believer that uh, the Russian state financially benefits from the ransomware activity that happens in Russia. Um, that's conjecture. There's not proof for it, but I certainly believe it to be true. Um, I have to think that these nation states with these highly advanced capabilities on cybersecurity are developing you know, that capability too uh, against cryptocurrency specifically. So I, that, that's one prediction. Um, and I, I think that's you know, almost certain to happen from my perspective. But then on the good guy side, you know, I think the you know, from maybe a little bit of a different way to answer that question. I think we're going to see a lot of consolidation in our industry. Um, right now, there are many, many different uh, sort of fragmented point solutions that you see large private equity companies buying multiple companies and sticking them together. I think Toma Bravo bought like four or five um, identity and access management companies in the last couple of months. Um, that activity is not going anywhere. So a lot of consolidation in our industry. I think that's to the customer's benefit, frankly, uh, because there's just so many, you know, if you go on the floor of RSA, there are just thousands and thousands of companies. I, I can't keep track of it and I study it. So I, I don't know how, you know, your average, um, average does. Yeah. Uh, it's got to be extremely challenging. So that that's, I think, the other um, other prediction I would make is more consolidation. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Paul. This was a really great conversation. I appreciate all the the knowledge that you shared with us today. And uh, I look forward to uh, working with you some more in the future. Happy to be here, Chris. Thank you for inviting me. Um, Always enjoy it. And a big fan of yours and Lima Charlie's and uh, Maxine's. So um, yeah, it's great. Take care, sir. All right. And that is a wrap for this fourth episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. I just want to take a second and say thank you to everyone for the feedback and support we've been getting from the community. We're super grateful and appreciate you listening in and engaging with us. If you found value from this podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you went to Apple Podcasts and left a quick review or rating. It would mean so much to the team who put this all together. And make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you are listening from. And again, thank you so very much, and we'll see you on the next episode.